Those are the types of songs we sang back when I was a kid. In your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4 if you're using a pew Bible. You'll find that on page 977. So we're going to go back to Ephesians. Ephesians, we started the last week of April last year. I think we've had 27 weeks in Ephesians so far, but we've had more than 27 weeks since the last week of April because sometimes I'm on vacation. And sometimes, once in a while, I do something uh, out of the ordinary, more topical. We did a uh, you know, a week, week or two, couple weeks for Christmas, I suppose, a week for New Year's. Ephesians chapter 4 essentially kind of starts off with a therefore. It's a I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. But it, it kind of starts with a therefore. So he's looking back to everything I've just written, all those first three chapters. Therefore, he's moving into new territory. Therefore, uh, based on what I've said, here's what you're to do. Now, if you've been here at all since last April, you have probably heard a time or two that Ephesians very neatly divides artificially into two sections, two halves, because Paul didn't write it in chapters and verses. That was added much later so that when I tell you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, you know what you're looking for. Otherwise, we'd probably spend about five or ten minutes everybody helping everybody to make sure... We're at the same spot. But Ephesians chapter 4 starts off with this therefore, and there's two halves to Ephesians that looks like this. The first three chapters are all about doctrine. The second three chapters are about duty. Doctrine is, is what you would imagine it to be, the apostles' teaching. It's gospel teaching. It's the, what God has chosen to reveal is objectively true. That's doctrine. Duty is now, what is your duty in light of God's doctrine? What obligation do you have? <laughs> Another way to look at it would be to divide it up between creeds and principles. And then in chapters 4 to 6, conduct and practice. Creed is, again, the idea of doctrine. Principles are doctrine, doctrinal principles. But then your conduct follows that. It's the, it's the practical aspect of Paul's letter. A third way to look at it would be exposition and exhortation. Exposition is exposing what God has chosen to reveal, and then he exhorts you to do something in light of what God has chosen to reveal. The last way that you might divide up the two halves would be indicatives and imperatives. Uh, in, in language, especially this would be true in, in Greek, in which Paul wrote, an indicative is something that is really true, and it's describing what God has done. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't require you. You don't have to agree with it or not. God has done it. These, those are indicatives. God has set forth these principles and things to be so. Imperatives are commands. Now you're supposed to do something because of what God has done. And it divides nicely between the two halves. One way to kind of summarize or encapsulate the first half, chapters 1 to 3, would be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You didn't have anything, this was God's doing. You're saved by grace, not your works. 
It's stressing doctrine. It's express or stressing what God has done, what only God can do. But on the second half, verses, uh, chapters 4 to 6, all I need to do is add the very next verse. For we are his workmanship, which is still doctrine. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved as a result of good works, but we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, it, you know, chapter 2 and verse 10 is still on the doctrinal side, but he's hinting at what is coming later. Because right now he doesn't tell you what those good works are. Right now he doesn't tell you how exactly you should walk, but he's letting you know that day is coming and that day has arrived. In 2023, moving forward for however long it takes us, we're going to be looking at the practical side of what God has done, the good works in which we are called to walk. There's a perfect balance between the two, where both are necessary, both are important, both complement the other, but it's in this necessary order. It starts with what God does, and then it turns to what we are to do in light of what God has done. Now, what happens, and this really isn't a critique, it's just kind of observing something that's so, and we need to be aware of it, and, and, and be cautious that we don't fall into a, a bad habit. But what happens is we take that balance, and it's kind of out of balance, where most of us have appreciation for both sides, but we probably have a preference which we like best. Some people, I, I'm more on the doctrinal side, I love Bible doctrine. I can read systematic theology as much as time will allow me to read systematic theology or biblical theology or whatever. Whatever I love, to me, it's this beautiful mystery of what God has chosen to reveal and, and you start seeing how the puzzle pieces fit together and you see something of the, the wisdom and the knowledge of, of what God has chosen to reveal and it, and it causes my heart to want to worship a God that is so much greater than all of us are. So the doctrinal side is, is absolutely so beautiful. But what, what could be a danger is when you get to the practical side, it's like, oh, yeah, I know that. And you're looking then for more doctrine. You're looking for, for more objective ways to understand this, what God has done. Because you want to keep the focus on what God has done, not what we've done. And if we talk very much about we, what we do, it might give the idea that somehow we've contributed to our salvation or our righteousness. So let's just keep the focus on God. But chapters 4 to 6 are important as well. They're necessary, and they need to be kept in balance. So the other side, chapters 4 to 6, some people more appreciate the, the, you know, doctrine seems so... I mean, maybe this last year has been rough on you. In Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, and it's like, doctrine is so dry. It seems so nitpicky. It seems like it just gives you something to divide over or fight over. Doctrine, you know... Uh, just tell me what to do. Just give me some marching orders. I don't need the doctrinal side. I want the practical side. But if you don't start with the doctrine, the marching orders wind up being something out of your own heart or out of your own experience or judged by popular opinion. 
Now, every church is a little bit different, but if I were to take the American church as a whole, I would say the American church as a whole prefers the practical side of, of Christianity as a whole, the American church, because the American church is so given and so driven by topics. They want topics of what your marriage should look like. We're going to spend a four or five week series on, on marriage or, or finances or your relationships or, or how to steward your life well. We've got all these topics on the practical side, and it oftentimes really has very little root in what Scripture says because the Bible isn't really about us. It's about God. It's for us, and there's things that are very specific to us, but mostly the God or the Bible is a revelation of who God is. Now, that clearly impacts our lives. So the other side is important as well. What I would suggest is that both sides were inspired by the Holy Spirit. God saw fit to give us doctrine. God saw fit to give us very explicit instructions what to do, how to live in light of what he's done. Both are necessary. Both are important. So if we spent 27 weeks on doctrine, I'll be kind of interested to see how many weeks we spend on the practical side of it. I know we're going to get off to a slow start, if that's a good sign. Okay, James Boyce uh, passed away in 2000. He was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church. He headed up some very wonderfully conservative uh, branches of, of American Christianity. He had a very high view of Scripture. And whenever I... I love James Montgomery Boyce, and I, I always find that individual... Uh, sobering to me because he's 62 and I'm 63 and I'm like I can't imagine that I would be dead right now and James Montgomery Boyce was so gifted and used by God to as a blessing to his church and in my scheme of things it's so unfortunate that he died at 62 of cancer and the last call to worship he ever gave at his church is so powerful. I read it once many years ago. It's probably been long enough ago. I should reread it again. Uh, but he, his faith in God was strong. Um, but James Montgomery Boyce, he, he summarizes Ephesians this way. You put the two halves together. With the possible exception of Romans, no New Testament letter contains a stronger or more exhilarating presentation of theology Chapters 1 to 3 have spoken of predestination and election, adoption and redemption, the work of the Holy Spirit, rebirth, the work of God in joining people from all nations and all walks of life together in the one holy body of Christ, the church. This is so marvelous a section that Paul ends chapter 3 with the doxology. We want to say with Paul... To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's how chapter 3 ends. And it sounds like the letter's finished. I mean, it ends with a doxology. It ends with an amen. And everybody thinks, well, now we can check out. But it doesn't end. He, a boy says, and we do say this passionately and intently if we have understood the teaching in these chapters. Yet the letter does not stop. So we'll go from the doctrine to the duty. 
In chapters 1 to 3, Paul gives the church, collectively, Christians individually, he gives the church a single command in three chapters. So, if you're thinking back to the first three chapters we've gone through, and I were to say to you, Paul gave you one thing to do, one thing to remember. Do you remember what it was? He only gave you one thing. You had one job, one thing to remember. Do you remember the one thing Paul gave you? And the answer is, I've kind of given you the answer because the answer is remember. Go to chapter 2, verse 11. And the word is found twice in the English Standard Version. Paul only wrote it once. So it's not two commands. He only wrote the word remember once. It's added a second time because it makes our English read better. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember, this is a command, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, and then they've added a remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the one thing he told us to do out of those first three chapters. Don't remember what you were saved from and out of. Remember what God has done in your life. A gracious work of salvation and regeneration. That's the one thing he tells you to do. In chapters 4 to 6, Paul gives 39 commands. So, if you didn't do so well with the one in the first three chapters, you're in trouble because now, if we were to do a quiz on the second three chapters, he gives 39 commands of things you should do. Imperatives. This is what you're to do in light of what God has done. 39 commands. One way to to group them all together, it's this theme of walking. And walking is a word that isn't always used in in some of the newer translations. Sometimes they just talk about living. I like the word walking. I prefer the word walking. It's, It's really a better translation when the Bible says we are to walk a certain way rather than live a certain way because I think walk suggests a certain direction. I think walk suggests a certain intention. You walk with intentionality, and it requires, or it suggests a certain measurement. You can measure, I mean, some people have uh, apps, or probably not pedometers anymore, but you have apps that you measure how many steps you take. It's measurable. We are to walk a certain way. We should see progress, we should see movement, we should do it by design and intention. It shouldn't be haphazard. We should know what God has called us to, and we should walk that way. So that's a real theme in the book of Ephesians. I'll have you look at some passages. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. This is the way we used to be. Chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says, You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You used to walk that way. You walked by design. It was measurable. You could see it. It wasn't pretty. Then in verse 10, Paul says, We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in good works. We've been saved by grace. We should walk 
with intention. It should be measurable in good works. Chapter 4 and verse 1, which is where we're at, so I won't, I won't read that. But look at chapter 4 and verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You used to walk that way. That was back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That's how you used to walk too. You shouldn't be walking that way anymore. If you're a Christian, it should not look, your life shouldn't be characterized by the same priorities as before you were a Christian. You're to walk a different way. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's not surprising when he says we're to walk in love, he then references Christ. Because if he doesn't reference Christ, we measure our love amongst ourselves. Well, compared to people that treat the way they treat me or or how I imagine they've treated me, I can consider myself a loving person. But Paul says, we've been called to walk in love. Remember how Christ loved? Um, I haven't caught up. Uh, I'm not measuring the same as the way Christ loved. But he's the standard by which my walk is judged or measured. Verse 8, chapter 5. For at one time you were in darkness, but, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We're to walk in good works. We're to walk in love. We're to walk as children of light. And then verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So we walk wisely. We recognize the times in which we live. We walk in love. We walk in good works. And we walk recognizing, we walk in light. We walk recognizing the time in which we live. It's a real theme in Ephesians, especially the second half, how we are to walk, what it looks like. So if, if you're the practical side of, of what you like in the Bible, uh, 2023 should be a good year for you. Let's look at chapters 4 to 6 in particular, kind of as a whole, how they might be divided up. In chapters 4 to 6, there are four main emphases. Number one, it's going to concern the Christian's church walk. How do you walk when you're together as a church? We're a bunch of people, different backgrounds, different traditions, different families. Uh, in a lot of ways, we share a lot in common with, you know, I'm looking at everybody. Uh, we have other things in common. But we have other differences, some of which are seen, some of which are not seen. But how do we walk together? Chapter 4, verses 1 to 16 address that. Secondly, it will concern a Christian's personal walk or his walk in society, in all of life. That's going to be the biggest section from chapter 4, verse 17 through chapter 5 and verse 21. How does a Christian conduct himself in all of life, in all of culture, in all of society? The third way is it will concern a Christian's domestic walk. What does your walk look like at home with the people that know you best? Uh, there's a proverb, I don't know who said it originally because I didn't look it up, but it occurs to me, charity starts at home. Like if my walk, if my profession as a Christian doesn't affect the relationships I have at home, what kind of a walk is that? No matter how much doctrine is filled in my head, 
If I can't treat people with kindness and a, a certain patience, uh, if I can't be in, make every effort to live at peace with people in my life, I don't think I really understand doctrine like I think I do. Because it ought to be reflected domestically, personally, in the church. And then lastly, it will concern a Christian's combative walk, uh, which, if that sounds exciting, is talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, how do we walk in light of spiritual forces which are unseen, which is really where the battle is? So those four things. Another, another way to divide up those same four categories, this is, uh, I don't really know this background. Uh, he's a living pastor somewhere. His name is John Corson, and he divides this, these uh, four sections up like this. Number one, it starts with the Christian's walk in unity. So how do we live in the church? We ought to be walking together in unity. Secondly, it's a Christian's walk in purity. Our personal walk should be marked by purity. Thirdly, it's a Christian's walk in harmony. At home, domestically, there should be harmony, which is different from purity or uh, unity. Unity in the church, harmony in, in home relationships and the close relationships. And then lastly, a Christian's walk in victory. In spiritual warfare, there should, we should live uh, and walk in a victorious way because of how we have been equipped by God for spiritual warfare. So that's another way to divide up the next three chapters we're going to look at. It starts like this, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's kind of our, our first section that will take us several weeks to get through. We'll find out how many. But when you look at those first six verses... I don't know what jumps out at you as kind of a, a major theme. I think for many of you, and I think you'd be right, it would be this theme of unity. Those first six verses, the church is to walk in unity. Those first six verses have a lot of unity in them. And that unity is grounded in those first three chapters. Do you, I mean, rehearse, reread those first three chapters. Look at all that God has done in Christ. All that God has done by His Holy Spirit to establish what we call the church. There's only one right response, and that's unity. Uh, we are not to be divided in light of what God has done. God's done all the hard work. Christ has done all the hard work. The Holy Spirit has done all the hard work. We are to walk in unity. That's the first main emphasis in those first six verses. Paul says, I urge you. If I connect it with this idea of unity. I urge you. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12. Verses, verse 1. Which goes together with verse 2. I urge you. Because of the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's not. You know. I don't know what's on your calendar this week. I don't know if it's convenient or not. You know. If you can work it in. Uh, try to make it happen. No. He's urging. Present your body a living sacrifice. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Here he urges us, he urges the church to be unified. 
For all the reasons that you can point out in those first six verses, all those one things that God has done that we'll have to talk about. And to some extent, I have no idea how I'm going to teach that because what is it? I mean, the church looks divided by anybody's standards on some level. Um, so where can the, where, because the gospel is so important, where do you say, I can't be, I'm not called to unity in that aspect, but I am in other aspects. Like, I would say clearly, whatever your timetable is for world, how end events, eschatology, how things are going to transpire in the future. I can allow a lot of grace there. It hasn't happened. I would hope you can allow a lot of grace there. We'll find out how it happens. But your scheme as to the kingdom of God, what happens, what doesn't happen, the timetable for that happening, I think we can be united in the fact that we are promised Christ is coming back in power and glory. He will reward the righteous. He will punish the wicked. Uh, there will be an eternal state uh, new heaven and a new earth. I'm confident of all those things. Whatever your eschatology is, I think you can agree on those things. But where can't you agree, and that's honoring to Christ, or where do we become petty and we separate or we break fellowship when Paul says, I'm urging you to be unified? Another way that he puts it is he says, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He doesn't call us to create the unity. He calls us to maintain the unity. The unity was created by Christ. If you go back to chapter 2, look at verse... Uh, go back to chapter 2 for just a moment. Look at verse 13. Here's where the unity was created. <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 13 reads, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, here's what he did, here's how he created the unity, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The unity is something God did. We don't, I mean, I definitely disagree with certain commentators or whoever they may be, and they're like, Christ prayed for the church to be unified, and it's so sad that hasn't happened. No, it has happened. Anybody who's saved by grace is unified. They may not live like it or realize it, but there's only one way of salvation. There's only uh, one spirit. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All Christians saved by the blood of the Lamb are unified. We are not called to create that unity. We are called to maintain the unity. To live like it's so. To order our lives so that we show that it's important to us. And we are not the one little special group that got it all right and everybody else is compromised. My, uh, you know, my own roots growing up were partly Lutheran, uh, partly Baptist. And when we went to the Baptist, the Lutheran church was, uh, well, I was too young to really say I just know what I think I know. But in the Baptist church, there was definitely this impression like everybody else has gotten liberal. 
And our church was the conservative one. We were the ones that believed that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Every other group? Not really. Our group took God's word seriously. And then I went to college. I went to Cedarville College the first time. And uh, I found out there were a lot of Christians there that didn't exactly have the same tradition I have. And they had a high view of scripture too. In fact, a lot of them lived a lot better than I did, which really wasn't saying much. But it was true. Uh, we are called to maintain that unity. And Paul says, you were, we are to be eager to maintain it. Some Bibles, you, instead of using the word eager, use the word diligent. Be diligent. It has this idea of not when it's convenient, not when, well, I really didn't care about that, that particular doctrine or that persuasion. Anyway, he's saying, be diligent. Get at it. It also has the idea of urgency. Paul, Paul oftentimes said uh, he was eager to visit a certain church. He's eager to do it. It's not like, you know, if I've got nothing better to do, maybe I'll stop in and pay that church a visit. No, he's eager. He's diligent. He's making plans. He wants to see it happen. That's the word that Paul uses here. Be eager to maintain the unity. And then one last thing that I want to point out before we kind of take a little break here. He says to walk in a manner worthy, which we're going to spend a lot of time on that next week, because I don't think I have time this week. But when he says to walk in a manner worthy, I don't know if that's alarming, because in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, I read that we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, this not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And now he's talking about we're walking worthy as if we deserve it. I thought we were saved by grace. And the answer is we are saved by grace. And this is the second half of Ephesians, not the first half of Ephesians. And even in what Paul has just said, he says we're walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Conduct follows calling. It's the gracious calling of God that affects a believer's conduct. You aren't called by God because of your conduct. Rather, your conduct changes because of the calling of God. Uh, some Bibles would argue that that word calling could be summons. You've been summoned to live a certain way. You've been summoned into the kingdom of light, the, the kingdom of God's dear son. That's what you've been summoned to. Your conduct ought to look reflect that. But the idea that conduct always follows calling, even in this particular verse. Now, I'm going to stop right here and take a break for comments and questions, but it's early. It's only 11.25. Any initial thoughts? You better come up with about five minutes worth of stuff, or I got another 15 if we turn the corner, which I can do. Anyone? Oh, Sonia, she's saving you. I'm going to talk about all that stuff in particular. Uh, I mean, if you want to share some of your own experiences, uh, your own church tradition, how, how you've kind of, what's the word, fleshed out the idea of unity or not unity, where it should be allowed, where you can't allow it. Lori? Well, even in their culture, that's a great question. You know, 
How do you take it back 2,000 years? What did that unity look like? How was it expressed? It was partly expressed through some of the, uh, the confessions, you know, the Apostles' Creed, some of the ways in which the church sent delegates, and they said, here's what we are united in. This is crucial apostolic doctrine and teaching that can't be compromised. You can't be a Christian if you're outside of these things. The Apostles' uh, Creed is a good example. If you can't recite the Apostles' Creed and have it mean what the apostles meant by it, I'm not called to walk in fellowship with them. If I can't recite the Nicene Creed, which, which really clarifies that Jesus Christ, the is fully, holy God, fully holy God, holy God, holy man in one person. Uh, and it clarifies he wasn't created by God, he's very God of very God, very light of very light. So if I don't have a right understanding of who Jesus is, not just a great teacher, though I think he was a great teacher, not just a great moral example, though I think he was a great moral example, if I can't agree that he was total, what's the words, I, I always forget what Sproul wants, Sproul wants me to say holy, holy God, or is it total, truly, truly, that's it, truly God and truly man. Um, so there. In, in the early church, they would convene some of these sessions that would clarify what is essential Christianity. I think that's important. Uh, I think another way that early churches 2,000 years ago would have uh, been eager to maintain the unity is that they supported one another financially. Okay? Uh, oftentimes you read about Paul taking up collection for the poorer saints back in Judea or Jerusalem. That was a show of unity. It wasn't like, in, in Hebrews they talk about remembering those who are imprisoned, remember those who are oppressed. It's the church remembering those things. It's, it's really one of the things that the ladies group does when they're praying for missionaries. That's, that's an expression of unity. I mean, to some extent, I mean, you could say, well, what's the direct bearing on our church? the fact that you're remembering missionaries, what they're doing over there. But it's the same gospel. It's the, it's, it's the same Lord. It's the same faith. And we're remembering their work and their challenges and we're praying for them. That's, part, that's an expression of unity. It's not the only way to do it, but that's part of how it is fleshed out financially, um, prayerfully, um, recognizing what can't be compromised and what can and I'm not exactly sure. I know even in our church constitution, we have essential doctrines and subordinate doctrines. So in subordinate doctrines, there are several mentioned there. Subordinate doctrines, you can be, a, I recognize you can be a good Christian and disagree with me on this. And we're still saved by the same gospel, the same Lord, same God, same Holy Spirit. Even though we differ on that. I think there are any number of individuals and groups that that is true. Uh, but I think it will be challenging, like you've already suggested. I think it's going to be really challenging. What does that actually look like? Uh, and there will probably be some difference of opinion. Joe? And, and in doing that, though, it's bringing in their separate traditions and backgrounds into the same fellowship. So... I would have to imagine it affects the kind of, you know, if you want, I mean, if it were in our culture, we would say it affects the songs you sing. Like, how do you sing? How much liturgy do you have? Jews were used to a lot of liturgy. I'm going to guess Gentiles weren't. Gentiles didn't know the Jewish songs. They probably wanted to write some of their own songs. 
And well, I like the old songs. Why can't we sing the old songs? Uh, I think there can be unity in all of that. Uh, Rick? Which is, which is why the first three chapters are written. And we're given the one command, remember what you were and remember what you are now because of Christ. So don't forget the calling. That the one thing we had to remember from the first three chapters serves as a bait. If we understand that, if we don't forget that, we will at least be poised to walk in unity. Henry. Well, I think the first three chapters is looking at it from God's point of view, and it's what God has done, and there is a necessary call that, that the called respond to. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with doctrines of grace. I'm very comfortable with doctrines of grace. At the same time, I am called to walk in love, walk in good works. It should affect my conduct. I'm not a robot. I'm not just following a script. I'm, with all of my personality, engaged with the grace that God has called me to. So both are true. I mean, there's a sense in which both are true, but it, it starts with God. It clearly starts with God, which is what I think the first three chapters lay the groundwork for. Plenty to think about, though. Somebody else? Joash. Which is Joe's point too, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is probably true when Paul's writing Ephesians. Uh, and that's partly true because Christianity is not the official religion of Rome. Like, in other words, what will happen in America, barring an outpouring of the grace of God, as Christians the Christian church becomes more and more ostracized or marginalized and, and as persecution against conservative biblical Christianity uh, becomes more intense, we will find uh, that we can agree about a lot of things when you're under persecution. In you know, what I've read like from Richard Wormbrand or, or people back under the Soviet Union that were persecuted as Christians, they aren't dividing up between, well, are you Baptist and are you Presbyterian and are you, you know, what is your tradition? Uh, the essence of what it meant to be a Christ follower uh, was recognized and they just got together. So I think you're right. I think a lot of it Probably mostly, as, there, as Paul's writing, it's a relational unity. It's more of a horizontal unity, not uh, so much uh, what it means doctrinally to follow. But I think both are true. I think both are true. And so on some level, we'll wrestle with both, but that's a really good point. Anybody else? It's... Yeah, so Lori's question, I think, I mean, I'm not sure how to encapsulate it, but it's, the gist of it is, I mean, the first three chapters, I mean, you could say, well, the first three chapters are telling you uh, what is core doctrine that you all have to agree to. But you can do that even with a variety of perspectives. Because I'll say any, you know, when I went to college, anybody, there were lots of people 
that had a high view of Scripture, but they didn't always see it the way I saw it. But they still had a high view of Scripture. They, it's not like they didn't want to read the first three chapters of Ephesians. They loved it as much as I did. But their perspective could still be different. So it's nuanced. All I can say is it's nuanced. Uh, as individuals, you've you got to sort it out. I mean... An example I had from years ago, probably 20-some years ago, here, uh, I went to, in Mount Zion, a community Thanksgiving service. Because I thought, you know, I've always thought, you know, you, Christians need to be united. So I went over there, I thought, I'm going to see what it's like and see if maybe our church, sometime in the future, would be able to participate in that. And I went to it, and I was just uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable by the way it proceeded, by the things that were said, uh, I'm, you know, we went to uh, this year because we had our Christmas Eve on the 23rd at Covenant Reformed, and our family wasn't celebrating Christmas till Tuesday. So on Christmas, the official Christmas Eve, I still had nothing to do. So Cindy and I picked out a Christmas Eve service to go to, and, and it was a choice, I thought, between two churches, you know, I didn't want to go crazy. There were a couple churches that we had good reasons we could have gone to, but one of them had a, has an open communion. And I'm not comfortable going to a church that celebrates open communion, where they're inviting the community to come into the church. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I don't think the Lord's Supper is a community event. I think it's a church event. So for me, that's a deal breaker. And I didn't want to go to that church. We went to a, a different. We went to First Baptist in Mount Zion. It was a nice service. I think we do better. <laughs> but it was nice. It was nice. Um, so, but it's, it's very nuanced. You got you gotta sort, you got at least got to wrestle with it. I know Rich sometimes talks about, you know, a lot of times it's not just where you wind up. It's how do you get there? How do you wrestle through? What does it mean to be united? It's urgent. You know, we should be eager and diligent about it. We shouldn't just decide whatever you decided, whatever your tradition is, that's what I'm comfortable with, that's what I'm going with. I think you're, you're called to wrestle through it. And you will probably make a little bit different decisions at different times. And I'm sure I've made the wrong decision more than once. I'm sure I will continue to make the wrong decision more than once. But I try to allow grace where I think I can. One of, I'll end with this. I promise. I think I promise. Uh, one of the ways I try to sort it out is whatever the point that I may have a difference of opinion with somebody else, I ask myself, does the Bible say more about that difference of opinion or does the Bible say more about unity? And if my difference of opinion, yes, I really do believe it's true, but the Bible has a lot to say about unity. And so I think I need to, to allow some grace there because the Bible calls me to unity. The Bible has a lot to say about unity, but it has a lot more to say about Christ. So if you have the person of Christ wrong, I can't be unified over that. I, our church is not in step with the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are not in step with them. They've got Christ wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses have Christ wrong. Uh, there are some very liberal denominations. Oftentimes they're in liberal buildings in downtowns of different towns. They have a very wrong view of Christ. I'm not in step with them. I can't be. Christ is more important than unity. Oh, one other point. But I said I was going to finish. 
this is kind of a, this is kind of a, it's one last thing. The other last thing is Promise Keepers was a, an interesting movement of men, right? And they would say, uh, we're united, you know, no doctrine but Christ. But by saying that, their doctrine is, our, their most important point of doctrine is that doctrine doesn't matter. That is doctrine. If you say doctrine doesn't matter, that's your doctrine. And so that's a problem. Because doctrine does matter, that's why we have three chapters. We've got to wrestle through it. Now we've got to apply it. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.